Hi, I'm Keith Law, and welcome to episode 20 of The Keith Law Show. I'm going to be joined today by Professor Richard Nisbet. He is the author of Mindware, Tools for Smart Thinking, a book I just happened to read recently. And one, I just really enjoyed it. Definitely recommend you pick it up. But also found it uh, applicable to a number of questions I've personally been grappling with, writing about, particularly in this season, questions from scouting to whether or not we should have a baseball season this year. Uh, my last piece for subscribers to The Athletic went up at the end of last week. It looked at the prospects who at that time were included in their team's respective 60-player pools for this season, and also prospects of note who were omitted, at least from the initial lists, although obviously some will be and have even since been added. Austin Martin from Toronto is an example. He wasn't signed. He has since signed. I have a feeling we're going to see him in the 60-player pool at some point this season. So you can check that out. I also would like to uh, thank everyone. I had some really nice feedback on last week's episode of the show. If you haven't heard it, I strongly encourage you to go check it out. Dr. Akila Carter-Francique of San Jose State University came on to talk about obstacles that black athletes face, particularly black women athletes, but all black athletes face when trying to play their chosen sports at the youth or collegiate levels or when trying to transition from playing sports to coaching or maybe even to front office roles. If you're dealing with a condition like erectile dysfunction, you want treatment ASAP. That's why our friends at Roman have spent years building a digital platform that can connect you with a doctor licensed in your state, all from the comfort of home. Roman makes it convenient to get the treatment you need on your schedule. Just grab your phone or computer, complete a free online visit, and you'll hear back from a U.S. licensed physician within 24 hours. And if the doctor decides the treatment is right for you, Roman's Pharmacy can ship your medication to you with free two-day shipping. You also get free, unlimited follow-ups with your doctor anytime you have questions or want to adjust your treatment plan. With Roman, there are no commitments, and you can cancel any time. So if you're struggling with ED, go to GetRoman.com law for a free visit and free two-day shipping. That's GetRoman.com law for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. Now it's my pleasure to be joined by Dr. Richard Nisbet. He is the Theodore M. Newcomb Distinguished University Professor at the University of Michigan and co-director of the UM Culture and Cognition Program, and also research professor at the Research Center for Group Dynamics at their Institute for Social Research. He's also the author of three books, including Mindware, Tools for Smart Thinking, and The Geography of Thought. Dr. Nisbet, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So I'd like to start with something you said towards the very end of Mindware that I thought was really interesting um, and particularly applies to a lot of the things I try to write about uh, in some of my baseball work. You say that humans are profligate causal theorists. Can you explain a little bit more what you mean by that phrase? Maybe give an example or two of, of how humans are just, it seems like we're wired to do this. Well, actually, I've never been asked that. Very interesting to me. Um, I certainly think it's true that uh, we're just very fecund um, theorists when it comes to causality. Uh, I, I think it's that uh, we don't know the power of our own creative minds. I mean, uh, if you give me an effect, you know, then often a very large range, causal possibilities will, will occur to me. In fact, it's almost inevitable. I mean, I just, you can't tell me an effect that I'm not gonna start reaching for causal theories. The problem is that we don't realize how easy it is to generate causal theories. Uh, and we don't have sufficient tools to critique causal theories 
once we've come up with them. I mean, some of the craziest ones, I mean, you'll find um, religious people saying, you know, the, the, the reason for us has to do with some human uh, failure uh, that's been visited on us. Now, that's a, a repository of causal theories that most people don't or not strongly. But we've got a million such repositories. It's just too damned easy is the problem. You talk a lot in the book about, and I, from my understanding from your research in general, about how much our unconscious minds work to process information, how much they're registering that we don't realize, and then what the unconscious mind does with it. So, Ken, can you give a, just a little bit of either examples or a little bit more description? What What is happening in the unconscious mind, say, when we're just we're observing, we're out in the world doing something, doing some specific task, we're supposed to be watching something, I'm thinking in sports, I go out and scout players. I'm there specifically to watch maybe one player. But after, especially after reading your book, I'm more aware now my mind is taking in a lot more information from a lot of different stimuli that it sounds like I don't really even actively recognize that it's doing. That's right. I mean, information available to us to reason about is just very dirty <laughs> in informational terms. It's just so much stuff uh, that's... Uh, hanging on to the package of things we have to think about. And uh, some of that stuff we're not even aware of. We didn't, we didn't, didn't know that, that it, uh, it was in our heads. Uh, other things we, we are aware of, but we don't have good causal theories uh, about uh, how some stimulus can affect our opinion. I mean, to, there, by now, there is, it's not even a cottage industry anymore. It's an industry industry <laughs> and academics and psychology in particular, coming up with examples of sort of, I mean, they're, they're so embarrassing to us <laughs> as humans. I mean, you have us vote in a church and you know, we're sort of more anti-abortion than we might've been if we didn't, uh, uh, voting in a school. And if we vote in a school, we're more likely to uh, endorse uh, the uh, millage uh, or the uh, school district uh, than if it were someplace else. My favorite terrifying one is uh, if you have uh, judges uh, who are looking at cases of people who want probation from prison, uh, the judges are much more likely to vote for probation if they're making the decision after lunch than if they're making a decision before lunch. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, a lot of them are hungry and sort of a kind of unpleasant thing and, you know, they're in the unpleasant state and the more I think about it, I don't like the cut of this guy's gym <laughs> or anything else or the color of the drapers in this room that I'm in. I mean, it's just so affect and spills over into everything. And now this ties back to the question you were asking before. We, we find it so easy to generate causal theories about why we did something uh, that um, in our ignorance, uh, we overlook these seemingly irrelevant stimuli uh, in favor of some plausible causal story that we can come up with as to why we did something. So, I mean, you may think, do I really believe this? Yeah, I really will ask me, hey, Dick, how come you did that? Uh, and I'll say, oh, well, bear in mind, 
<laughs> that I'm the author of the paper about in unconscious influences on behavior. Uh, so uh, I'll, I'll do the best I can, uh, but uh, you, you're forewarned. <laughs> you've triggered a memory for me specifically. So I, like I said, I go out and see players. And one thing I've caught myself doing, people in baseball, I assume this is true in other sports, always want to compare some young upcoming player, some prospect to a player from the past. And I often mock some of these comparisons because they're very facile. Every right-handed pitcher who comes out of Stanford is like Mike Mussina, who's probably the greatest right-handed pitcher to ever come out of Stanford. Mm -hmm. They're obviously not all like, first of all, it's a terrible reason. And he was the best. They can't all be like him. Right. But I have caught myself being in, sitting in ballparks and thinking, I'm getting a memory. This person, this player is triggering a memory of such and such a player. And I'll realize it's because I saw that player five, ten years earlier in the same ballpark. That's not actually a good reason to compare the two. But it seems like that's the kind of example you're talking about. And I probably did this for years before I was aware that I was thinking this. Right. Yeah, that's actually a lovely example. We do so much re of our reasoning by uh, virtue of schemas uh, that come to mind. I mean, the schema of this right-handed pitcher from Stanford, you have a few things that come up, you know, maybe he's red-headed and, and quite tall and, you know, then bang, there you are. <laughs> and then we tend to emphasize too much reasoning from cases. Uh, from the features of some case that we have to the features of some case that we're trying to reason about. I mean, one of the, my favorite examples of this is Lyndon Johnson uh, was, uh, and in fact, most politicians of that general era kept us in the Vietnam War, partly because they didn't, they had in mind this terrible surrender uh, uh, by uh, Prime Minister Chamberlain. Mm -hmm. It's easy to show that very extraneous, non-causally relevant aspects of some case uh, cause us to reason in relation to that, by similarity uh, to that case. What's the cure for this? Well, one is the one you discovered for yourself. I mean, which is, <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> Catch yourself doing it. If you say, oh, boy, that really reminds me of that guy, I say, yeah, yeah, there are some similarities. <laughs> now, uh, right. next question. You just mentioned schemas, and I actually had wanted to ask you a bit about this because I know it's a common term in the world of psychology, but not something I think the average person, I've actually never taken a psychology class, really hears about this idea of these cognitive frameworks or templates that we're using to try to make sense of the world around us. And I, I looked at it two ways. Do you find that there can they be both helpful and unhelpful in the sense that hey, sometimes it's good to put things in categories so that we can better understand them, but maybe we tend to slice things so thinly that we're putting things together that aren't that similar or our sample sizes for making these judgments maybe becomes a bit too small. Right. All quite reasonable. I mean, yes. So, I mean, it's, first of all, it's inevitable that we're going to do comparison to, to cases. And the, the solution is, when you suggested, just be aware that you're doing it. And then what else is, is relevant? Uh, I mean, there probably are exercises like, okay, suppose, okay, it's the right-handed pitcher from Stanford. Got anything in common with the left-handed pitcher from Louisiana State? And, you know, come to think of it, he does. <laughs> Maybe I should be a little cautious 
leaning so much on it. I mean, the, the favorite ex example of the schemas that we all use is uh, the schema of the self. I mean, how does this, if somebody reminds us of ourselves, I mean, it's, uh, it's so easy to think that that person is like us in every respect. You, know, you find out, you know, we're talking for a while and find out where you went to college. You went to Tufts. Oh, my God, I went to Tufts. I mean, I assume that and I, everything that's true of me is going to be true of you until proven otherwise. Probably not a great heuristic. And you mentioned the representative heuristic, representativeness heuristic in Mindware, which I'm familiar with Daniel Kahneman and Avis Tversky's work. I cite Thinking Fast and Slow all the time. But again, it seems like that's also, I don't know if that's really distinctive from the way that you think about schemas, but taking it back to the world of sports, at least, we rely on that all the time to try to categorize these players. And I do think in that world, it is a useful framework. The idea of saying, you know, right, as long as you're sticking to variables that are relevant, red hair, not relevant. Mm -hmm. Height actually might be relevant. There is at least a belief that if you're over a certain height, and I'm talking about six, seven, six, eight, pitchers like that, tend to have a harder time staying healthy or have a harder time just developing coordination to repeat the way that they deliver the baseball. Those seem pretty useful and based on actual data that we've used to back those up. So our brains are doing this kind of automatically, but then someone else has sat down and tried to find evidence to support, okay, this contention that pitchers who are, say, six, seven and taller, they should be grouped together because it does seem like they do have a common characteristic. That, to me, seems like a process you could potentially use to – you're starting with this heuristic unconsciously, but then we can try to back it up with data and make sure we're headed in the right direction. Great. Perfect reasoning. You talk uh, a little bit about uh, pre-perception of the subconscious mind, another phrase. You have a lot of great turns of phrase in, in Mindware. Uh, you say you don't – you describe it as essentially we don't know why we know what we know. And we can't always account for our own motives and reasons. And I particularly like that. And you've, you've touched on that a little bit with the, the hangry judges and people voting in a church. But even the simpler point, that this idea that we don't even know why we know what we know. Do we develop a sort of false confidence about that? That we just come up, we, th we know things, or we think we know things. But if we don't know where they come from, do we develop a sort of overconfidence in that? information or knowledge because it's just there we assume it must be true because i just I, my brain just pulled it out it, it must be accurate right well actually the route you're going down now is a route i've been taking some thinking about what i'm i call uh the uh, thinkability heuristic mm -hmm. uh if i could think it that's a certain that's a kind of evidence for the possibility that it might actually be true and although that's weakly true. It's not nearly as true. As, I mean, you see it among scientists all the time. I mean, they'll say, oh, you have your finding there, Professor Nisbet. Uh, well, uh, I think well, you're wrong about the cause. It could be this. And, and the guy's much more confident that he, I mean, he might be right. But he's much more confident than he has any right to be. Uh, and I think that's, I mean, that's a theme of my work in general and uh, Kahneman and Tversky research paradigm that I am part of, that we're just, we're just overconfident. I mean, it's just, uh, we don't ourselves as often as we should. How, how should I know? Or do I really know this thing to be true? Or what else uh, might I have considered? Um, and uh, I mean, scientists are pretty good about having heuristics for 
assessing causal theories, but they certainly are far from perfect. So. I want to shift direction a little bit. It was interesting for me, at least, reading your book, Mindware, in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic and some pretty terrible decision-making by a lot of people from government leaders all the way on down to individuals. You talk a lot about the importance of cost-benefit analyses, which I think – I personally think they've gotten a bit of a bad name because they are kind of associated with – excuses found maybe to not use environmental regulations, for example. Um, talk a little bit about, if you can, just sort of the, the idea, when when is a cost-benefit analysis really appropriate in your mind? What kinds of decisions should we be using them for? Well, I, I think we use cost-benefit principles all the time in our decision-making. I mean, shall I do this? Possible benefits come to mind and possible costs come to mind. And there are some cost-benefit rules that are a little bit subtle that we may not use at all. My favorite example of this is the sunk cost principle. People will say, you know, might in many ways describe this, but the Harbor, Michigan, and uh, there's a basketball game that's going on tonight in Detroit that I bought two tickets for it at a fairly high uh, and. But it's not, it started to snow just as I'm about to take off. And I checked the weather and it's, oh my God, it's going to be a blizzard. And, um, you know, should I, should I go? Well, yeah, I'd like to go. But, uh, but really, there are very good reasons not. But if I don't go, uh, then I'm um, uh, throwing away the money on the tickets. And at that point, the economist on your shoulder should say, Hulk, wrong. <laughs> you can't get the money back for those tickets, no matter what. And, and the, econo- the economist, I don't know if it's economist had this or if I invented this <laughs> gimmick. Okay, if you're really in this situation where you may be at risk for ignoring uh, some, uh, or paying too much attention to some cost, Ask yourself, suppose a friend were to call me up and say, hey, I have tickets for the basketball game in Detroit tonight. If the answer is great, then go ahead. Don't let you go. If your answer is, you got to be kidding. Uh, it's starting to snow. There's going to be a blizzard. And oh, by the way, the, the uh, star player may not even be in the game tonight. I mean, then you've got your answer that way, too. So it, it, it's, it's a... I mean, it's a uh, cost-benefit theory includes the idea that we mustn't pay attention to sunk costs. It's always a mistake. But, uh, and it's surprising. Cost-benefit theory in general, at large, it's all very plausible to us. We understand it. We use it all the time. But there are aspects of it, like sunk cost and other things like opportunity cost, uh, that we don't pay attention to. So it's, everybody should know a little micro week, you know, which. Yes, I, I certainly agree with that. And having even, well, it was part of my major in college was economics. I wish I'd taken more. I wish I'd taken more when I was younger, actually. That was my big complaint. Did not actually take New York State, only required a single semester of economics to graduate from high school. And that was certainly not enough. It was interesting as I was reading your book, I also happened to listen to a podcast, uh, an episode of the Hidden Brain podcast that featured Peter Singer of Princeton University. And you both sort of touching on one similar subject, which is how we value uh, in cost benefit analyses. He was talking about how we value a human life 
And he was talking about this in terms of the COVID-19 pandemic as well. And I feel like this has come up a bit now as we're seeing baseball players. I don't know how much you followed this, but many baseball players are testing positive for COVID-19 as they attempt to restart the season. And some players are simply saying, I'm not going to play this year because I'm concerned about risks to my health, that of my family. I personally have a hard time with this idea of, I guess I'm torn both ways, right? Should we do a cost-benefit analysis to figure out, should we play baseball this year? What level of sickness or even potentially somebody dying do we accept to put on a baseball season? That sounds repugnant to me morally, but then there's the little economist on my shoulder you were just talking about saying, no, we can try to talk about this in terms of costs and benefits. We have to figure out what a human life or, or human sickness, what's, what is that worth? What is the cost of that? What do you say to people who struggle with that when the cost-benefit analysis runs into what is essentially a, a subjective or a moral consideration like that? Right. Well, it's just an extremely interesting question. And, and actually, you know, I find myself really torn by this question. I think about it a lot. I mean, and then these unpleasant little thoughts sometimes come into my mind, which is, you know, okay, it looks like 25 or 30%, maybe more of the people who are dying are in nursing homes. What's the cost of that? <laughs> the truth is, it's a benefit, in a crude, horrible economist view, yeah. a benefit. I mean, because uh, those people are not productive. Right. Uh, and then you can ask you can ask yourself, well, the life is worth a lot to them, presumably. How much should that enter in? I, I mean, it's just down the rabbit hole. Yeah. I mean, it's and this is something that the the, the COVID problem has made me think about all the time, and I, I don't and I don't come up with any answers. I have a friend who's the president of a college in in California. She has to decide whether to open the college or not uh, for the fall. And the possible costs of either action are enormous. I mean, if she opens it and lots of them get sick and there they are trapped on campus making each other even more sick, uh, I mean, it's it's been a disaster. On the other hand, if she doesn't open it, there are huge costs. There's a hole in these kids' education. The college is gonna go, if the college doesn't get tuition, for a term, for some colleges, that means that's it. They're finished. It's like you know your mom and pop grocery store or whatever. A better example would be cafe. I mean, if if you don't get the if you don't keep the revenue in, you're you're finished. So I I don't I don't know. I mean, we do think in cost benefit terms, all of us automatically, and we should. But exactly what we ought to cost count as a cost, uh, and how much we should value it. Same for benefits. There, there, there aren't terribly good rules for that. My guest today has been Professor Richard Nisbet. He's at the University of Michigan, where he's co-director of their Culture and Cognition program, and he is the Theodore M. Newcomb Distinguished University Professor. He's the author of several books, including Mindware, Tools for Smart Thinking, which I very strongly recommend to anyone who has enjoyed the work of Daniel Kahneman or even read my most recent book, The Inside Game. Professor Nisbet, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please feel free to leave us a review on iTunes if that's your chosen platform. I just noticed today how many five-star reviews you folks have left. I want to say I really appreciate all of that, your comments and just your star ratings. Uh, it really helps us and just means a lot to me to know that you're all enjoying the show. At last, if you do choose to head out at some point, and I have ventured out into public in the last few weeks, 
um, please wear a mask. This shouldn't be a political issue. It shouldn't even require this much urging, but I wear a mask absolutely everywhere I go. And if we all wore masks, we would have a chance to actually beat this pandemic down. And that would give us a better chance to have a complete baseball season. There's a lot of players testing positive, a lot of players opting out. I can't blame any of them. And I will not criticize any player who chooses to opt out of this season. But I would also like to see a baseball season this year. And the only chance we have of that is if we get greater compliance from people physically distancing and wearing masks. So please, if you go out at any point this week, if you're going on holiday, going to the beach, and if you're absolutely going to go out into public like that, please wear a mask. It's not just for you. It's for the people around you and for the good of baseball. That's all for this week. Thanks so much for listening.